0: Hey, what's going on everybody? Welcome to the next episode of the Fire Nuggets podcast. We got episode number five. Today is July 18th. Uh, We're very happy to be sitting down with Nick Papa as our guest tonight. Uh, Goals here are very simple. Bring guests in, try to get as much information and as good, good information as possible from them in about 30 to 60 minutes. So uh, we appreciate you being on here with us, Nick. Um, Let's go ahead and start off. uh, Where are you from? What department are you on, rank, and uh, years of service?
1: First off, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. My name is Nick Papa. I work for the City of New Britain Fire Department in Central Connecticut. For those that aren't familiar with Connecticut, it's the first city west of Hartford. It is a 130-man department, so six engines, two ladders, and a deputy chief shift commander. Uh, I've been there for coming up on 14 years, and prior to that, I volunteered in the town that I grew up in, in Newington, Connecticut, which is sandwiched in between New Britain and Hartford, and I am a second-generation firefighter, so uh, my father retired from that department as a deputy chief, so that's me in a nutshell. Awesome, man. Um,
0: so you just released a book, and is, it's available for purchase now, right?
1: Correct? It's available for pre-order. It should be available sometime next month. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it's going to be available f- uh, for purchase at FDIC at the beginning of the month. But it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a close call.
0: All right, you, you mind telling us about the book and kind of kind of also, uh, you know, along with the book, tell us about your origins of breaking down ventilation and and, and understanding it better.
1: All right. So, this book is the culmination of probably the last five or six years of really in depth uh, you know, research and, and development into a lot of uh, retrospection as to my own fireground experiences and you know, things that I uh, experienced firsthand and things that I actually had a hand in doing on the fireground. Uh, particularly those that didn't go necessarily well. Um, Really, the genesis of this book and my teaching of the subject uh, goes back to when I first got promoted, uh, my chief of department sent the the six of us that were promoted to lieutenant at the same time to the State Fire Academy. They had a program called ILEADS that was for new or aspiring company officers. And it's a week-long, you know, immersive company officer training. And each year they have a special guest come and instruct for one of, one of the days, usually at the end of the week. We were lucky enough that year, uh, which was 2015, um, 2015, to, um, we, it was Deputy Chief George Healy from the New York City Fire Department. Now for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he was the, the, the head liaison from FDNY during the Governor's Island test uh, experiments uh, with the Underwriters Laboratory and the, uh, uh, the UL FSRI. So that was at the height of, of the very beginnings of UL's work with uh, studying fire tactics. And that was with the the, the ventilation uh, tests that were done. So this was kind of eye-opening for me because I have always been into the job and have tried to be a, uh, an ardent student of the craft. But as he's talking, that was really my first indoctrination to, this, uh, to UL and to the studies that were being done. And to be quite frank, I was I was pretty clueless to what had been going on with those Governor's Island tests and the results of those experiments. So I was just enamored with what he had to talk about. And as, as he was speaking, I really had that epiphany moment, the light bulb uh, went off and as he's talking, I'm starting to, to go through all of these, these incidents in my head where things uh, had less than favorable uh, outcome, or not, not so much outcomes, but uh, when we executed certain tactics specifically regarding ventilation, you know things didn't go as exactly to plan. and one fire in particular uh, was my the first fire i had uh i was i was on where i was searching on the inside after sliding the floor to the truck from working uh, my first four years on the engine and we were ahead of the hand line searching on that particular floor in that particular apartment and what i uh, once i as we were searching my captain anchored at the door i reached the outside wall and now conditions were, were pretty soupy i mean it was a the It was a little, I mean, it was a a decent conditions. So I reached the outside wall. I feel up just like you're trained to do. And I find a window. So I immediately, you go back to what you were initially trained on in the academy. And what first pops into my head is vent as you go. So I get up, I smash the window with my halligan, get a nasty, thick, black dump of smoke. And I'm like, oh, beautiful. I'm like, I'm going to get some lift. I'm going to be able to see better, move faster. It's all going to be good. But what didn't really stick out in the moment as being a a red flag because I didn't have the other piece of that that saying of vent as you go and that that those precautionary steps that need to be in place before you execute that tactic. Uh, When we first entered the room, that back room in these railroad flats is typically a bedroom but for some reason they had converted it to like an open TV room. So, because when we first made our way in, I could just barely see the the hazy outlines of the of the furniture at the floor level. It was just barely discernible from the visibility at the floor level. And when we made our way in, I was like, that stood out to me as odd. And then second, there was no door because they were they weren't using it as a bedroom. So that should have been the red flag number one is we're searching ahead of the handline. The room that we're searching is, I can't isolate it. So when I made it to that outside wall, I should have never taken that window. But again, lacking that piece of the, of the training aspect, I just reverted back to that saying event as you go and did just that. So I get back down on my hands and knees. We did get a good, uh, lift of the thermal layer, probably up to about maybe knee waist height. I get back down on my hands and knees to finish off the search. And I hear my captain yelling at me from the door, you know, Nikki, Nikki, where are you? Like get, get back to the door. It's coming down the hall. So as I make the final uh, leg down the uh, down the room, I could see the fire licking down across the ceiling, and it's headed right for right for me, where the window I had just vented. Because, you know, now that I I, I know full well, by creating that low pressure, uh, outlet where I was searching without having a way to isolate my position and without there being water on the fire, I drew the fire right down on top of me. So at that moment, I'd never, and even uh, in the months after that or the years after that, I never put two and two together was that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I chalked it up to like a lot of uh, firefighters do in that, that instance is, Oh man, that was close. It, it got, it got a little sporty in there. And, you know, and when in reality it was no, like, yeah, it was a little soupy in there, but it was, we were, we were in good standing until I took that window. So once I started putting the pieces together and, in. in examining these past fires and, you know, some things that I had done or some things that I had been on the receiving end of, uh, I just went headfirst down the rabbit hole of learning about the the studies that were being done, about uh, going through the ones that were finished, the ones that were ongoing. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And every class I could take from people that were involved in it, um, and then also, uh, I had very early on in getting promoted I had taken Aaron Fields nozzle forward program and anybody who's taken that program knows uh, that during his lecture period Aaron always makes sure to give credence to those that came before us and he had talked about James Braidwood going back to the, uh, the you know, early to mid 1800s and his work and you know kind of re- it was really the probably the first uh, largely printed uh, recognition of you know, what we now kind of call the flow path, uh, which he referred to as the draft. And so it was, you know, back that over 150 years ago, it was in our literature. So this, and it's basic physics, it would just, we were just now kind of putting it into the the mainstream and and putting it into the context of our ventilation tactics and our other tactics that, um, that influence the ventilation within the building and which in turn, uh, changes the fire behavior and victim survivability for anybody trapped inside. So Aaron really uh, opened up uh, another door for me and and in, uh, in like looking at these 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 older historical do- uh, fire service documents, and being somebody who uh, I grew up you know reading you know Vinnie Dunn and John Norman, and you know these you know, classical you know fire service authors and educators but now I started going back even further than and then them to the Emanuel the Freeds and you know, the, 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 the James Braidwoods and the William Clarks and, uh, and realized that all of this information that was essentially being quantified uh, by UL and the studies that were being done was there anecdotally from, from these fire service uh, innovators and the, the, uh, these iconic uh, um, writers it was there all along it just wasn't as in maybe as in depth or didn't have the data to to back it up and put the numbers to it. So I really made it my mission to incorporate not only uh, the the new data and the, the research but also making sure that that didn't eclipse all of the experiences that these gentlemen had been writing about for for over 150 years. So I I made sure that they complemented one another and and it, um, made sure that people were aware that this information was here all along. But you know the the studies now are are just putting it in a, in a more clear lens, and we now have um, that data to back it up. So that was uh, so I, I put together a program that was never meant to leave my department. Uh, that I, I my sole mission was to put together a really basic two hour program. That was going to be an in-service class to, to, for my department to make sure that, you know, everybody was, was seeing what I was seeing and to make sure that people weren't learning the hard way and, in, in, in having the same miss or making the same mistakes that I was making as a new ladder company firefighter that those few years prior. And I sent it out to a colleague in the state who, uh, who's also an, an instructor and I, I just wanted him to, to peer review it and just say, Hey, like, before I go ahead and, and uh, at, deliver this to my department as my first official order as a as a newly minted lieutenant you mind taking a look at this and giving me some feedback so uh, you know this is done right and well so he gets back to me and said hey this looks great uh, I think what you, you're you're really on to something uh, why don't you write an article uh, to fire engineering about this and I, the thought had never even crossed my mind I mean I had you know, always been uh, an, an avid reader of the trade journals as well as uh, you know, the, the, the textbooks, but I never thought twice about you know, writing an article, at least not the, uh, at this point in my career. it had always been um, something on my bucket list was to, uh, bec- uh, to publish a, a book or uh, to, to publish uh, something that was of value to the fire service. But I didn't feel like I was at that point in my career uh, yet. Cause I, again, I was only you know, probably, when I got promoted, I was about seven and a half. This was probably like eight years into my career. So I, I did just that. I wrote an article, I sent it to him and said, Hey, what do you think? And he's like, this is great. And he forwarded it on to the editors at, at fire engineering. And um, it got picked up in the magazine. And he said, listen, um, why don't you keep refining this program and try putting it, uh, submitting it to FDIC. And again, uh, I'm thinking uh, like, come on, this is, there's, there's no way. Like i um, I'm still, uh, you know, New to the fire, new to the career fire service, and you know I don't work in in a major metropolitan city. I don't work in a a historically ghetto fire department. Uh, The chances of me teaching at at a place like this is just slim to none. But I threw caution to the wind, and I kept refining the program. And when the uh, the request for proposals came through, I I threw my name in the hat. And a couple months later, I get that email saying congratulations, you're, you've been accepted to teach at FDIC. So from there, it just snowballed and I kept, you know, refining the program. And a couple years later, um, I got asked to, uh, to write a, uh, a chapter for somebody else's book. And I graciously accepted and, you know, started writing this, this chapter on, on fire behavior and ventilation for, uh, for another author. And after I got done with it, I sent it over. and He said, wow, this is really great. This is more than what I, I was looking for. Uh, thank you so much. And after I was done, I said, you know what? I'm like, I, I have so much more that's in my head that I want to get out. And I just kept writing. And before I knew it, it was, uh, you know, my wife will get a kick out of this, but it's like, I, I just fall, I, I get laser focused when, you know, things like this happen and it's, um, it's almost like uh, um, I just get su- I get sucked in and that's all I can see. So I just kept the words kept pouring out uh, out of my head and onto the keyboard. And before I knew it, I had you know, 20, 25,000 words. And I said, "You know what? I'm like, I have enough for my own book here." And I called up the editors at Fire Engineering and said, "Hey, I, I think I got something here. I, I pitched the concept to them, set them the rough draft of the manuscript and they, they dug it. So um, they got back to me a few weeks later and said, Hey, uh, good news and bad news. Good news is we love the concept. We want to run with it, but bad news is you're only about halfway on the word count to what we have for our boilerplate contract. So I said, okay. And I went back to the drawing board, kept uh, pounding it away on the, on the keyboard. And, you know, a couple months later uh, I had my, my working manuscript and it ended up turning into uh, uh, me getting a contract, and, and turned into the book. Which, essentially, the book is just the the written word version of, of my full day ventilation program.
0: That's that's awesome, man. I'm I'm, I'm very happy for you. That's that's really exciting stuff. Um, you mind talking about your time on the technical panel for for UL?
1: So the, the timing of me getting on the UL technical panel uh, couldn't have been any better because I had a really g- good handle of the of the nuts and bolts of what I was teaching, uh, and I had it, it was I was I, done a good job of covering the you know, the broad spectrum. But when I got onto the the UL tech panel, my biggest goal in this this whole endeavor was to 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 help really pinpoint what the timing aspect of ventilation was. Cause that was one thing that in talking to so many other people in teaching the class and in talking with the, the, um, the other firefighters that were in my class was everybody wanted to get a, a really, uh, a finite definition of what coordinated ventilation actually was and what it meant for it, uh, to, or what true timing actually looked like. And it ranged from, you know, a pretty, uh, uh, broad spectrum of what people thought was coordinated ventilation, and especially uh, on the heels of the the early ventilation studies from UL, which only focused on what was happening in the fire room. And I think the pendulum swung too far in the uh, the direction of ventilation going towards the, um, we were a little bit too on the conservative side, and there, there was a big push for we got to wait till there's water on the fire. We got to wait till there's water, a good water on the fire. And then you talk to some guys, especially those that had really good street experience in, in very urban uh, departments. And I remember teaching up at the Northeast fire summit up in Maine with the, the new England fools. And I had the pleasure of, t- of teaching on the, uh, um, on the, uh, on the billet with Steve Robertson from Columbus, Ohio, who I just think the world of. And he, he talked about what his definition of, of coordinated ventilation was from the engine company officer's perspective. And he said, you know, for my two and a half frames, which is my bread and butter working fire, when I'm crossing the threshold of my charged hand line, the ladder, you know, barring any unusual circumstances like hoarding or um, anything to that, uh, to that matter, The latter, the uh, the latter firefighters that work uh, that I work alongside with know that when we cross the threshold there it's it's safe for them to take the window because they know that it's just going to be a couple seconds for me to, to get up the stairs if it's on the second floor, to make that hallway and to start flowing water and push that fire, uh, you know, right out the window that they just vented. And that way, you know, I'm going to capitalize on that lift, you know, we're going to have the fresh air coming in behind us and it's, it's going to work out in, in perfect sequence. And that was hit from his repeated experience over you know 30, 30 years of working in a very ghetto district in a very busy department. So I, I just wonder of what you know why, why is there this such disparity in people's definitions? And so that was my big focus. So throughout the the process of the the tech panel, which uh, working with some of the the most world class firefighters from all over the country, uh, just I can't. Say enough about the experience and you know the contacts that I was uh, that I've been able I was able to make the friendships I was able to make with the the, the other tech panelists and also the advisory board members that facilitated our project. Um, I can't say enough about it and the the acquired structure burns that our tests were done in um, really added a uh, a layer of complexity and that realism that so many people were were after. And some of um, the harshest critics of UL's work was. Oh, that's all well and good when you have all uh, this these controlled variables in a you know and a man-made you know, structure inside of a laboratory and everything's fixed and choreographed and so Ewell, you you know, called the bluff and said okay fine you know the the next coordinated fire attack experiment which is going to encompass both fire attack and ventilation in unison um, we're going to do them in acquired structures and the buildings were uh, were largely the you know legacy uh, constructed buildings and you know we controlled as many of the variables as we could to to stay within the confines of the scientific method and you know um make, making sure that our results were were accurate and within the scope of what we were examining and these not only were these real buildings but they were fully furnished i mean we we helped the uh the engineers you know lay out the and furnish these rooms which were we you know, un- unpacked unpackaged the, the, the bed linens. We hung curtains over the windows. I mean, they were done up just like any bedroom would be in a, um, in a um, residential dwelling. So that way that they were, it was as realistic as possible. But again, while staying within the confines of, of you know, proper research. And we got some phenomenal information. And as I alluded to earlier, the, the ventilation studies that were done prior, they pretty much solely focused on what was occurring inside the fire room, which we all can kind of understand what happens based off of just simple physical science and physics of, if you add air to a fire, the fire is going to get bigger, like we, are, we understand that as, you know, Steve would say it's a, uh, it's a predictable surprise. Uh, so what we didn't, un, uh, we didn't have quantified was what was happening outside of the fire room, which is more likely where our viable victims are gonna be located, and also where our, our search and fire attack crews are going to be entering in and approaching from. So what we got a really good assessment of is just that. So once that front door is opened up, those ventilation openings are created, what's happening, especially along that intake uh, pathway, in addition to what's happening outside of that intake pathway in those uh, remote rooms outside of that, uh, of where that fresh air is tracking into the fire through. And, as you can imagine, even when ventilation preceded water on the fire, you know, the ventilate, a couple of the experiments, which were the ones that I was uh, actually there to witness, were the vertical ventilation um, which preceded fire attacks. So they'd open the front door, ventilation opening was created, fire attack crew entered, they had to uh, make the stairs, they made an, a, an initial hit at the, in the stairwell landing and then pushed into the fire room. And what they saw was that when the ventilation opening was created, it obviously when we let the bad stuff out, that whole Newton's third law of motion that, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So when we let the uh, the heat and smoke out, we make room to let fresh air in. So that fresh air is making its way in from that front that front door that we're making entry through. It's tracking its way up the interior, open interior staircase to that room on fire, which is where that fire attack crew is approaching from. So in those, those seconds leading up to uh, water application, you are getting that improvement in conditions down at the floor level because that's where that fresh air is coming in from. So we 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 got that, that bit of lift as we let the uh, the heat and smoke out, which created room for the fresh air to come in. And now not only are we um, getting an increase of visibility down at the floor level, we're increasing oxygen concentration, but and we're also decreasing the toxic gas concentrations: our carbon monoxide, our hydrogen cyanide, and the you know the. the you know, the list of other mix of toxic uh, uh, fire gases. So these are all a benefit for victim survivability. And also it makes conditions that much more tenable for the fire attack crew that's making the push, but also the, uh, the search and rescue crew that may be going in more than likely taking that same path of travel to initiate their search from uh, the, uh, the seat of the fire back to the, the areas uh, that are, are less threatened you know, based off that hierarchy of, of threat to the, the victims. And then what was also uh, very uh, intriguing about this whole thing was what is happening outside of that intake pathway in those rooms that are remote from that, uh, that approach that approach hallway. So even the rooms that are directly off the hallway, if they don't have their own source of intake, so if that room, even if the door, even if the bedroom door is open, if, that, if the, the window within that bedroom isn't open to create, uh, create an intake point, there, there's relatively no exchange occurring, even with topside ventilation over the the fire room or just um, outside the threshold of the fire room in the hallway, because there's there's no point of intake that's coming through that uh, that remote bedroom, that's tracking into that uh, that hallway and going out towards the the ventilation opening that was created. So that was really enlightening because there was this this kind of. Uh, this under this misunderstanding that you know especially vertical ventilation especially if it was created uh, you know over the the hallway or just outside the fire room that we were going to have this global lifting effect of that floor and that's not always the case because if you don't have those uh points of intake within those remote spaces they're not going to draw from the uh from the outside f- uh, clean environment to replace what's being let out so there those those rooms are, are being relatively unchanged um, in the, those the first few minutes of that ventilation and even after the fire attack so this is why it was so critical for this is why it's so critical for us to occupy the, uh, the interior as rapidly as we can in committing to those primary searches and as long as there's either water on the fire or we can isolate um, those remote bedrooms from the fire venting those spaces, to uh, To get that fresh air exchange, improve uh, tenability and also survivability for those victims. So this was uh, this information was tremendous in um, us not only pinpointing the the timing of aspect of ventilation, but also kind of um, getting a, a better glimpse into our our search techniques and what was going to uh, best enhance victim survivability for for uh, any potential victims that were trapped inside.
0: That's a lot of awesome and great information. So that's that, I mean, we're only in the weeds, you know of it, so that's that's I'm, I'm jealous of how much info you get from that. So you were also uh, the star of some training minutes uh, videos, weren't you?
1: Yeah, so uh, fire engineering had tagged me uh, a year or two back now. Uh, to do a a fire, uh, fire, uh, fire engineering training minute series, which I did on right from the material that I've been teaching on, which is the, the, uh, the coordinated ventilation. So I ended up doing a seven part series um, that I did with the, uh, the help of uh, a captain that works down in in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is uh, another, uh, it's a busy city down on the shoreline, you know, closer to, to, to New York city. And he helped him and his training company uh, helped me put together these uh, these training minutes videos on exactly the the, the very material that we're talking about in very short you know two to three minute clips, you know ranging from you know door control to you know coordinated fire attack to you know searching ahead of the hand line. Uh, overhaul and you know, hydraulic ventilation, we covered a pretty wide swath of uh, of subjects within that coordinated uh, those coordinated operations umbrella. And it was a great experience. I, I got to do them at uh, with, along with Frank Ritchie, who was doing his own series for the training minutes um, down in New Haven at a project ho- house that they were um, that they were uh, demolishing uh, a couple weeks after we we did our shoot. So it was a it was a really cool experience, um, you know, getting to work alongside uh, you know uh, fire engineering and their um, their AV team. So I was really happy with the way those came out, and like I said, they're they're great you know, short little two, three minute videos that you can, uh, you can watch on your phone real easily while you're, uh, you know, on the oval, uh, oval office in the morning, or, you know, just uh, as a quick little primer for, uh, for a drill on the apparatus floor. So it was, uh, like I said, a great, great experience. And uh, I'm very fortunate and, um, you know, can't uh, be grateful enough to fire engineering for the opportunity, opportunities that they've presented me with.
0: That's a great intro, man. So, just just catch everybody up on speed. Uh, you're a lieutenant on New Britain. You're very knowledgeable when it comes to ventilation. You got uh, your new book that's going to be coming out. Um, you are a technical panel member for UL. Uh, you would starve some training minute videos. And last thing before we get into uh, you know like the the real questions is, uh, let's let's go ahead and allow you to do a shameless plug. Uh, you have Fireside Training, right?
1: Yes. So. Um, I decided to, it was more more of kind of like a social experiment. And also after I finished writing the book, uh, I really enjoy writing. So for me, it's a it's a nice outlet in a way for me to organize my, my thoughts because I'm sure like a lot of uh, people uh, tuning in to this podcast, uh, I have a very busy mind and it, it's uh, one of my it's one of my best qualities but it also can be one of my biggest detriments because it's like i have that that shark mind where it's like i can't it's always in motion i can't i can't stop it so for me just uh having an outlet to write and to organize these thoughts is is really helpful especially being a company officer a lot of what i write down uh winds up turning into to drills or or conversations at the kitchen table so after I finished writing the book, to keep my, my writing skills sharp and also to you know give my uh, mind an outlet, um, I start I I uh, started a, a uh, Instagram page called Fireside Training, and I part of it like, like I said was more of a social experiment because I'm I'm not overly thrilled with uh, you know where like social media has kind of gone uh, in a lot of in a lot of ways with, with the fire service. Um, it's one of the, the best things and also one of the worst things that's happened to the fire service because, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you tonight and, and having this opportunity and you know, been lucky enough to, to meet you and uh, uh, the other fellas from, uh, from Fire Nuggets if it wasn't for social media. So it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous blessing in that regard and, and the amount of information that, that it provides all of us to, to make us smarter and to um, provide this free flow of information, it's also can can be, uh, you know, not, I don't want to use like the word destructive, but it just can be uh, a little self-indulgent, I'll put it that way. So I wanted to try and change the narrative a little bit and see if we can bring a little bit more uh, professionalism and um, to try and fuse what I was doing with fire engineering, because, you know, there definitely has been a shift in uh, in the fire service with you know, the, the changing of the generations and what people are drawn to now with, you know, the, the trade the printed trade, trade journals are not are, uh, the primary source of, um, of where people are getting their information from. A lot of it is driven by, um, you know, online sources, whether it be, you know, the websites, whether it be YouTube, whether it be the social media. So I wanted to try and kind of kick things up a notch and, you know, kind of fuse the articles and uh, the YouTube videos or even like the training minutes with, you know, short uh, in Instagram uh, posts. So I started doing, I started this fireside training and my, you know, my, my clever, you know, you know hashtag, if you will, was fi- on fire firesat, uh, fireside chat Friday. So every Friday I'd, I'd put out a post and it was usually uh, where I got the material from is whatever I was drilling on or something interesting I saw um, while clearing from a call, or out doing area survey or building surveys at the uh, at the firehouse, I then use that to turn it into my fireside chat, which was a couple paragraphs long with a, a, a series of pictures or maybe a short video, and that's kind of where it started. And then I I started doing a a second post during the week on Wednesdays, and I wanted to see if if I could really gain some traction with that and if I can, you know. You know, uh, you know, kind of raise the bar a little bit with that. Um, and, you, you know, it was, it was fun for a while and um, I got a, you know, a decent, uh, a decent following, but it kind of, it kind of ran its course and, you know, it, it, I still, you know, dabble with it every now and again, but um, it was more, it it's now kind of just more become a, an outlet for me to, you know, do my announcements for you know, if I uh, write a new blog post on uh, the Fireside Training website, which is firesidetraining.org. Uh, so pretty much all of my uh, my activities that re- are regarding my teaching or my writing um, or the book can be referenced through the website. So I've kind of just focused my writing right now to the um, these uh, these blog posts, which I put up on the website. And then you could also find uh, all of my past articles and uh, the training minute series that I've done, all the links are there to, to uh, access and view those um, as well as uh, to pre-order the book. So um, that's kind of where I'm at now. And, uh, you know, that's where I, I, the, it's not, it's not a true LLC. So I, it's not like it's a, a full-blown training company. It's more just a, you know, kind of a, in, just an organization that I use to just, you know, collect uh, my thoughts and just have a, a, a central central place on the interwebs uh, for me to put all of, my, uh, all of my writing and all of my, my information uh, so people can easily find me because, you know, I kind of just go back and forth on a day-to-day about, uh, you know, with social media. So, you know, not sure where where, it's, uh, where I'm going to wind up with it, if, uh, if I'm going to keep the accounts or not, but you know, that way uh, I'm, acce- I'm still accessible.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for that awesome intro. So we'll kind of start diving into these questions now. So I've been pretty, pretty lucky to do a couple webinars with you, you and, and, and Ladine and Jay, you know, we've, we've been able to help uh, get, you know, a couple thousands of dollars to donate to people in need. So that, that's awesome. Very appreciative. So, you know, t- tying along with that, obviously, you know, with that group of people, we're all very passionate for the job, right? So wh- where does your passion come from? What, what drives it and sustains it?
1: Well, uh, being a second-generation firefighter and having grown up in the fire service is, without a doubt, um, what made me who I am today, and is the the primary source of of my passion with fire service. Because uh, my fi- uh, my father's been in the fire service, you know, since I believe the early '80s, maybe even prior to that. Uh, but I mean, since well before my uh, my birth, my my father's been in the fire service, and. You know, he is very much the same way where he eats, breathes, sleeps and eats the fire service and just growing up around that and, you know, seeing his passion for the fire service and, you know, just tagging along with him every chance I got to go to the firehouse to run calls and um, just seeing his passion. And he was very much involved in instructing. And he had uh, was one of the the principal instructors at, at his fire department and well his specialty was was vehicle extrication so just getting to see like him so passionate about it and getting to share his knowledge and that passion with others and uh, then getting to see him you know actually practice his craft by getting to tag along on incidents from you know ever since i was a little kid then to, to when i was finally be, uh, coming, coming of age at 16 to, to join as a cadet um, and then getting to actually ride the rigs as well was and getting to see that firsthand and start to experience it for myself was, you know, just something that just solidified it even more for me. Because like so many kids, I I just my first, uh, you know, vocational aspirations were were to be a fireman, and I just never grew out of them. And then as, as soon as I, I could, you know, become a member of the department myself. Um, it just the first time I got to ride the fire truck to a, an actual call, which um, coincidentally was a working fire. Um, you know the night that I got sworn in uh, was a first due job and my old man was actually running the fire as the incident commander so it was uh, was was pretty wild. and that just was was it, man. it was if there was any glimmer of a, of a doubt or, or chance that it, it, it wouldn't happen, it was gone at that point, which I don't even think existed to begin with but Um, There was no chance after that. I was, I was done. And, you know, from, from that point on, it's just, I've been full bore into the fire service and uh, I I don't think I've really ever let off the gas pedal, but I mean, when we talk about passion, clearly anybody who's tuning in tonight is, is as Joey D, uh, Joey D would say into the job Uh, there. There's no doubt about that, but you know, passion is, without a doubt, some of our best qualities for, for those of us that are, that are tuning in tonight. Um, but it can also be uh, also a stumbling block because it can set us up for, uh, for disappointment at times, or, or it could get us into trouble if we don't temper it, or uh, we don't know how to, uh, to weave it in at, at times when dealing with certain people or certain situations, which um, I have certainly experienced my share, uh, fair share of. Because when you're so passionate about something, um, a lot of the times you, you have this expectation that other people are going to feel the same way because we have such a love for the job that we can't fathom uh, any other view of the job. We can't, we can't even you know, believe that anybody could see it as anything less than that. Um, but the thing we have to remember is that the fire service attracts people of all walks of life from all different backgrounds. And there's gonna be uh, plenty of people out there that we're going to work directly with, that we're going to encounter, whether it's you know, coworkers or if we're you know, a company or chief officer that they're you know, people that work under our command, um, or you know, it may be even somebody we work for um, that just doesn't love or uh, love the job like we do or, or um, approach it in the way that we do. Uh, so it's important that we make sure that we're appreciative of you know, the, the other viewpoints out there and the other, you know, the, the other people that we work with. And you know, while I'm by all means not saying for, for anybody to, um, to not be who they are, because uh, that couldn't be anything further from what I'm, what I'm saying, Is it's just uh, there's going to be a, a times where we're going to have to temper it and we're going to have to adjust our expectations accordingly. And we need to make sure that we're not coming across as overzealous or we're not pushing a certain way. And I think uh, Jay Bonifield did a really great uh, uh, explanation of this during his uh, uh, podcast with you guys, where you know, he said, you know, find something that you're, that you're very passionate about, that you have some experience with, or that you have um, a, a large amount of uh, knowledge base in and, and focus on that. You know, it's I think it was... Uh, you know, Pete, Pete Lund from the FDNY uh, had this, he was noted for saying like, if you can make one thing in the, uh, uh one change in the fire service stick, um, you, like you've done good. And it's in the kind of the point of that quote, I think he was trying to make was like change making change in the fire service is a very difficult thing to do. Cause there's that, that, you know, that, that quip in the fire service that gets thrown around that there's two things that you know, uh, firefighters hate and it's the way things are and change. It's like that, that, that gets tossed around a lot. Um, so it's very difficult because we have a, a there's, you know, there's tradition, there's money, there's personality, which involves ego. Um, and that can be a very, uh, a difficult thing to maneuver around, including our own. Um, so it's, a it, it actually imparting real change within our organizations or, or within our, um, you know, circle of influence within the fire service, um, is, is a difficult thing to do. So if, if within your, um, your time within the fire service, if you can make one you know notable change that has a, a genuine impact and improves, uh, the membership or in, tr- improves the service delivery, then that's something that you can hang your hat on. And, and like Jay said, like, you don't want you don't want to turn everything into a battle, you know, whether you may know better or not, you, you know, you don't want to, you know, die on every single hill, because eventually, like he says, you, you become white noise. So it's very important that you, you know, you pick your battles, um, you're very cautious. And, you know, it's having the, the soft skills in the firehouse and in the fire service is just as uh, can be just as important. And, uh, beneficial to your career as, you know, the the knowledge and in, in skill sets that we use on the fire ground. Because, you know, let's face it, the vast majority of, of our time is spent um, with each other in the firehouse. And, um, you know, being able to uh, impart change and having a, a say in, in, the, in the matters uh, di- uh, directing our department is, a, is heavily based on our reputation um, the leadership capital and the credibility capital that we build um, based off of our interactions with with our coworkers, which includes the people that um, we work with that are under our command and that whose command we're we're, we're under ourselves. So it's it's very important that we're we're constantly um, putting our, our best foot forward. We're you know we're being um, you know accepting of 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 everybody in 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 their viewpoints and. We, you know how to work around them and you know how to, uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Jocko Willink and his podcast and the books that he writes. And he always describes it as, uh, you know, he makes the military uh, parallel of of flanking. So he says, you, you want to make sure that your your point gets across, but you don't want to jam it down their throats or make it seem like you're, you're refuting what they're saying or saying something that's contrary to what they believe or what they're saying. So if you can, you know, kind of, indirectly inserted into the conversation and even better if you can make it seem like it was their idea um it's it, it, that's the best case scenario because now you're not going to get any more support than if somebody thinks it's their idea because then it's uh the, they've got skin in the game because they think it's their uh their baby so that's uh that's something that i've definitely had to learn the hard way uh repeatedly over the years so and it's, it's like, you know, uh, we need to make sure that we're, we're constantly seeking, uh, uh, self-improvement and we're, we're just being introspective and, and looking at how we're conducting ourselves and, you know, how we can improve to, so we can not only become, you know, better human beings ourselves. And, uh, but also, so, you know, we can better, uh, you better be of service to uh, to our department because it doesn't matter how much experience you have, or how much you know, or how skilled you are, um, or the contacts that you have, and you know these these plans that you may have that may be the the best solution in, in this this innovative concept that may revolutionize um, the way that you do business in your fire department and may you know greatly improve the service delivery if you're not respected. And if you don't have that, um, that capital in the bank that you've built up um, through, you know, positive re- relationship building, it's never going to get off the ground because, you know, people are just going to, you're just going to turn a, turn a blind eye to you or in, in a deaf ear. So that, that definitely is, uh, is my biggest um, kind of like public service announcement, like while, while we're on the, the topic of, of passion, because, you know, I, I can, I'm, you know, comfortable enough to say that that's, you know, something that, that, uh, that I've experienced as a, as a stumbling block and something that I'm constantly trying to, uh, to improve upon. So, you know um, that's my word of advice to the listeners.
0: You know, that was, that was a great answer, man. I'm a, I'm a third generation fireman myself and uh, going on fires with my dad, uh, you know, I was blessed to do it for like seven, seven or so years. It was just a lot of fun um, yeah, so, I mean, you literally knocked out two questions with, <laughs> with, with your answer. So, uh we'll, uh, we'll go ahead with the second
1: question. We'll see if you can uh, fill in the blanks anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, you know, passion and motivation obviously isn't, isn't universal. You know, not everybody feels the same way that, you know, the, the, the 10%, you know, you know, feel. <clears throat> so, even even some of the most engaged people that we work with can sometimes start feeling like their passion is is fading so do you have any advice or tips uh to stay motivated through the peaks and valleys of the career
1: absolutely because life is going to throw you uh curveballs and often when you least expect it and you know, they're going to vary in size uh as time goes on but let's be honest, even the most passionate and, uh, and motivated, um, of us that, that, that are out there, there's, we're going to ebb and flow at times, but the way that we get through that is by having, um, by having friends and by, uh, by having people that we could, that we can confide in to, um, to be those, those sounding boards and those mentors or, or just, you know, brother and sister firefighters that we could call in those moments to, you know, to pull us up out of those uh, out of those valleys of, of motivation, um, where you know we may have you know gotten uh, gotten punched in the gut when you know usually usually it comes from a place where we're you know full of zeal and we're we're passionate about a particular um, initiative that we're trying to bring forward or uh, something that we we learned or um something some new new piece of information or, or, or a new piece of equipment that you're trying to bring forth or, or something that you're trying to advocate for typically that's kind of when those uh when when those periods uh happen where we can kind of uh, get a good shot and, and wind up in the kind of the the depths of um you know fleeting uh, fleeting motivation so in those moments i have relied on you know on my wife my you know you know having uh, that significant other that you can uh, that who can pull you pull you back up uh, at home and you know also just your other family members and um but also it's just like the fire the fire nuggets community among many others is, is such an incredible organization and you know having the ability to reach out to to you know, people like yourselves i mean just from I'm so blessed to have been brought into doing those webinars with you guys. And uh, I mean, we've had a a group chat going between um, the two of us and Jay and Nick ever since we did, we, we were getting ready for that first webinar. And it's uh, been a a good source of at very least humor uh, on a, on a pretty weekly basis. So uh, having people like that, that you can, you can reach out to at a moment's notice that understand where you're coming from that share the, your passion and are motivated just like you that can you know help walk you through those periods and and build you back up to get you where, where you need to be is is the best thing I can can offer and you know that this is where the uh, the internet and social media is is such a tremendous benefit because this uh, gives us this infinite source of, of networking that we're it just allows us to be connected from not only across the country, but across the the world really. And, you know, we're making, uh, we're meeting colleagues and building relationships that would have never been been possible without, uh, without that, that venue. So um, I, that that's one positive that comes out of it. So that would be my biggest, uh, my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to reach out and no matter what period in your career you're at, no matter what rank you're at, no matter what uh, your circumstance, everybody should have those confidants and those mentors that that you can reach out to that you know you can seek that advice from that you can um, that you can go to in those times of need because there's there's a we all need to stick, to stick together and help each other out and you know we often encounter the same the same problems and um, have the same mindset. so, like I said, just, just re- reach out and, you know, make those, make those relationships because they'll, uh, they'll help you out substantially down the road.
0: Um, so you're a very uh, attention to detail kind of guy. Do you feel it's important uh, for people to, you know, kind of take a dive into the weeds on a given topic to attain the mastery?
1: So a- absolutely. And that was one of the other motivations of, of my book was, I spent, I mean, I don't even wanna, I, I can't even quantify how many thousands of hours I have into the research and development of not only the, the program that I teach, but the book. And that was part of my motivation was I didn't wanna make it, I wanted to make it so that information was readily accessible and it was condensed in a way that was not only firefighter friendly, but that was, uh, that was practical. So it gave the in-depth, in the weeds explanation for those of us that um, that need to understand all the little nuts and bolts and all the little um, intricacies of how something works. So for those that that really wanna to to go in depth and in depth and take that deep dive into whatever that particular topic is, in my case it's ventilation. That information's there, and one of the things that I was so impressed by with with uh, Aaron Fields was. Um, his emphasis on citing his sources and making sure that credit was due for the work that was uh, that was done prior to him because essentially we're, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and all of our work is the result of the work and the experiences that were um that were conducted by those that came before us so i wanted to make sure that i diligently cited my sources all throughout the book and even it was even if it was a, a lecture that i attended uh you know five years ago or it was a phone conversation that I had with Aaron. I mean, all of it is diligently cited. So you can you can look at the, the notes of each chapter and see exactly where I got the information from. And that way that the, the the bibliography at the end of each chapter and cumulatively at the end of the book could serve as a, as a springboard for anybody that wanted to, to read further, to look at where I got this information from and kind of, you know, uh, lead them into the path of if they want to pursue um their studies even further or maybe go in uh, some different directions based off of what they read so that was huge for me and i think it's important to to know how things work and and know the the fine details but um i do i think is it is is it going to make or break your performance on the fire ground if you know like all the little minute details no and that's why why um I wanted to make it the, the book as concise as possible. And I wanted to, so that way that the uh, just your your everyday street firefighter that was just looking for, all right, where are the, you know, I just want to understand how this works at the, the most basic level. And I want to get those tangible nuggets that I can take to my next fire on the fire, then, and that I could execute on the fire ground. So no matter where you are in that spectrum, I wanted to be a one stop shop for for people to be able to access all things related to ventilation as it kind of, it pertains to fire behavior, victim survivability, and how other fire ground operations are, are linked to it and how they all kind of play into an effective ventilation. So that was the big piece because, uh, what th- that, that's the emphasis of this book is the, the book is not a how-to book. It doesn't go into the techniques of ventilation. There's, there's other, uh, there's other fire instructors and other authors that are far better suited and do a phenomenal. Have already done a phenomenal job of going into the weeds and in detailing um, the different techniques and in getting into the how-to of, of ventilation, whether it's cutting the roof, you know, forcing a bulkhead door, all those um, those actual skill sets. That's not what I wanted this book to be because that's not where my uh, you know where my knowledge base and my experience lies, where mine was uh, into the fire behavior, uh, the actual physics behind ventilation, um, its coordination with especially fire attack because when I, when I started uh, get, getting involved with ventilation and this co- you know, coordinated ventilation operations, I had just gotten promoted off of a ladder company and I went back to an engine and I've been on an engine ever since. So it's funny when, you know, when I get introduced or, or people, you know, hear about, um, what I'm doing or, or, you know, are reading my articles and they get to the, the bio and they see, you know, engine, uh, Lieutenant on engine one, they're like, well, wait a second, timeout. Where's this dude's credibility? You know, why is an engine company officer teaching on ventilation? But what a lot of people don't realize is, is I'm not teaching on the how-to. And even though I did get promoted off of a ladder, um, you know, my focus is on coordinating that, that the coordination of that ventilation to support the fire attack, which is the engine's job, and also support victim survivability, um, which encompasses the search and rescue aspect as well, because if we can support uh, the, uh, the firefighters searching and make their job easier by creating more tenable conditions, we're essentially going to, to support that victim survivability um, through that means as well because the more efficient they are um, the quicker they get hands-on, the quicker that victim can get removed. And then by making the, uh, the environment more tenable, you know, we're, we're also enhancing their, their chances of survival. So that's, that's where my, um, my focus lies. So it's, that's where my area of expertise is. And um, for me, actually going back to an engine in the officer's capacity has actually given me a more well-rounded and better appreciation of the, the, the topic, especially the coordination piece of it, because when I was on the ladder, yes, I was the one performing the ventilation, whether it was taking the window or cutting the roof, but most of the time that you're performing the ventilation, you're on the outside of the building. You're either on the roof or, you know, on a por- on a portable or, you know, on the ground level outside that window taking the glass and you never, you know, reap the, um, the consequences, uh, whether they're positive or negative from the actions that you took. Whereas the engine company officer is usually the one either confirming that ventilation or um, or requesting it. And not only that, but they're on the receiving end of it. So who better to, to talk about the the timing aspect and what coordinated ventilation actually is than the person who's either requesting or confirming it and the person who's the dir- the direct beneficiary of that ventilation. So that's where kind of my standpoint comes from. And I, I kind of like start leading off a lot of times with that because now people kind of understand where they come from. And, you know, I've had people, you know, take some pot shots or, you know, you know, they, they give you the, the stink eye when they're like, Oh, you know, you know, what, you know, what's your pedigree or what's your, uh, you know, credibility for teaching this, like you're, you're an engine guy. And then after I give them that little, uh, little explanation, you guys are like, Oh, I, I get it. That actually makes sense. It's like, yeah, like it's, it, uh, I am very much I very much believe in you know s- staying within your lane and you know sticking to what you know and what you have experience in and, and that's where um, where the focus of my my teaching and my writing that's where it lies. That was, that was excellent,
0: man. Thank you. Um, so we've obviously done a lot of talk about coordinating ventilation with attack but could you give us like a little brief uh, summary on your thoughts about coordinating ventilation with search?
1: So we kind of touched on some of the major points already with, uh, with my earlier answers, especially with uh, the, the whole vent as you go and also with the conditions in those, those rooms re- remote from the intake pathway or remote of the fire room. So what's being uh, studied right now, there's the, the, the current UL FSRI research project going on right now is the the search project. So what they're doing is focusing on uh, the areas that we weren't able to to quantify uh, directly through our study. So while we focused on the fire attack and ventilation aspect, they're looking at the specific ventilation tactics and how um, the impact of of those specific tactics, whether they're the type of search, um, the Victim removal technique, all of those uh, those uh, different variables of the search and how they're uh, they're impacting victim survivability. So they're they're trying to quantify that by you know using uh, the pigskin samples, by using the uh, uh, the gas sensors to to measure those different fire gas levels and the oxygen concentrations and. Uh, looking at you know the changes in uh, the smoke layering, especially down at the floor level, which is where our victims are, are predominant, our viable victims are predominantly going to be. So that is um, there's a, a many of us that are very much awaiting the results from that project because I think that is going to further fill in um, those gray areas or those um, those those kind of blind spots that we may have where we don't have the specific data um, or the uh, the numbers to actually de- uh, defend certain tactics or, or have a way of um, you know quantifying them. So that's I think what's going to be a, a big piece is not only further validating the uh, the effectiveness of of you know targeted search. You know whether it, whether you call it VES or VEIS, I could care less. That's why I just like saying targeted search. Um, and then also this um, you know isolating your position throughout your conventional search. And if you can isolate your position, you know, venting as you go, um, even if that, that hand line's not um, in position or flowing water, as long as you can effectively isolate your position from the fire, just like when you control the door, when you do a vent enter search, you know, you're, you're, you're isolating that space from the fire. So that window that you just vented is not having that, um, that effect on the fire and you're not creating that low, uh, that low pressure outlet which is drawing the fire to your your um, the position that you're in, which in doing so is now we're getting air exchange within that space. We're uh, we're preventing further contamination of heat and smoke into that room. We're bringing fresh air in, letting whatever's pent up for heat and smoke out, which is hopefully going to give us a nice uh, give us a nice lift or at least some improvement in visibility down at the floor level, which is also going to improve um, your concentrations down at the floor level. With in, in raising the oxygen concentration and lowering the the toxic gas levels, which are all going to greatly benefit uh, any victims that may be trapped, and then also with you know venting as you go after you've isolated your position or after you know you that you know that good water is on the fire and the fire is in check, once you take that window and you get that positive effect, now with that window being taken, depending on the conditions, that window that you vented may become a viable um, Uh, means of, of egress for removing that victim from, especially if that, if you're, if you're on a ground floor level, if that window leads to a, a a suitable egress point, whether it's a, a rear porch, a a suitable fire escape, or, you know, they can position a, a, the bucket of a tower ladder or an aerial ladder to that position. Um, Or even if you have the manpower to throw a, a ground ladder that may be an option as well. It, it may also be that conditions um, warrant you to, to temporarily shelter that victim in place until that, that hand line gets on the approach and starts pushing the fire back and essentially covers your extraction of that victim and improves conditions out in the hallway for you. Because the last thing we wanna do is, is have us isolated that room from the fire, vented, improved conditions, located that victim, and now open that door Recontaminate that space, and now drag them into the hallway, which may be um, worse off than that r- that room initially was in the first place. So it's going to be conditional. You know, you have to be able to size up in that moment and take into consideration where the room is that you've located the victim in relation to where you came in from, uh, the other egress options that are that uh, that are available to you. Uh, the current state of the fire conditions within uh, between those points, and then um, what's the progress of fire attack. So once you've assessed all those variables and uh, you kind of put that into what's best for the victim, that's gonna be uh, what your decision is for extraction or that temporary shelter in place. And I can't say enough about what uh, the firefighter uh, rescue survey is doing. And now what uh, Brian Brush is doing in concert with that, with his um, graduate work at Oklahoma State University. And if you're, if anybody listening, which I, I would be hard pressed to believe, if you're not aware of either of those two uh, projects, I as soon as you you're done listening to this, go look up the firefighter rescue survey. Go look at Brian Brush's uh um the research that he has out so far, and the data that that's there because. The better that we understand um, w- how victims are are faring out based off of the fire conditions and the tactics that we're utilizing to not only search for them but but remove them, and how the other or what what the other variables are on the fire ground at that particular uh, incident. Once we understand how that all works and how they play into each other we're, we're, we're essentially just kind of making our our most informed decision and we're doing a lot of it based off of experience or the experience of, of others, but with the, the help of the data that we're getting from, from these surveys that are being done and the research that's being done, um, we can hopefully have, um, more concrete data and make more accurate and more informed decisions on what's actually best for the victim based off of, um, of quantifiable data. So, that, you know, while not everybody, you know, you know, likes the, the research for whatever reason that may be, you know, you just got to look at it from an objective standpoint, you know, look at it, take it for what it is, use what you can uh, take, what you can use and practically apply to your particular department in the way that you do business. And at the very least, you know, try to, to, uh, to employ it. So you're not only better, uh, you know, better and more successful at your job, but more importantly, that we're, uh, protecting life and property that much more, because that's the ultimate goal of everything that we do is we're trying to make sure, making sure that we have the greatest impact on, uh, the victims that may be trapped. And then also the, the property that we're trying to protect as well because that is the sole reason that we exist is for the, uh, to accomplish those, uh, those two pieces. And that is exactly what the, the research aims to do and what hopefully that data is gonna, um, gonna help us improve with.
0: Thank you for that, man. Um, so it, from, from your opinion, when it comes to ventilation, what are we as the American Fire Service doing well and what do we need to work on?
1: I think with a lot of things, uh, like other things in the fire service, especially in the American fire service, what we're doing well is that we're, by and large, the the level of aggression, um, or if you want to use a more professional, uh, you know, phrase for that, as you know, that mission oriented mindset is very much there, especially for the folks to, uh, tuning into this podcast. The but where we need to make, make sure is just like with passion, that we're tempering that and that we're making sure that the timing piece and the coordination piece is what, um, what is ever present, especially when it comes to ventilation. Because the timing aspect, because there, there's, there's three primary elements, elements to ventilation being successful. It's the correct timing, the, the, the correct location of the opening that we're creating, and the correct amount. And the one that's the by and large the most important out of those three is the timing aspect, because uh, that truly makes or breaks the the outcome of that ventilation and whether it's successful or not, and you know um, whether or not we have the, it's an, an intended effect. So that would be where, where I think we need the greatest attention placed, and where I think we could stand to to improve the most is just making sure that we are you know, following those those, those three Cs of, of fire ground coordination or, you know, th- those fire ground operations, which is coordination, communication, and control. So we're making sure that the the actions that we're taking are communicated so we we, we know what each other is doing, especially if you don't have um, well-established SOPs and SOGs. You know, you don't have those unit and writing assignments that that are providing you with that playbook and that baseline to operate off of. That's where communication is even more important for you um you know that we're making sure that we're coordinating fire attack uh search and ventilation so they um uh, that they complement each other and that they ultimately in, uh improve tenability and victim survivability and then also that we're we're controlling the environment as best we can because obviously we're we're always behind the eight ball when it comes to to fighting fire because the fire has home the home field advantage it has a head start on us and you know we may or may not know the terrain. You know we're 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 at a, we're turning out at a moment's notice. We don't have advance notice of the fire, um, so we're turning out at, um, suddenly. We're in doing our best to piece the uh, piece this puzzle together in a very condensed uh, you know time frame in a very high stress situation. So um, the more we understand about our tactics. How they work, um, how victim, uh, how our, how the environment and how fire behavior and our tactics all work together, and how they influence victim survivability. The more we understand about all those components and how they're interrelated, the better our decision making is going to be. You know, and then, and that includes building construction too. I mean, I, I truly feel that in addition to the how to and, and having a the techniques and, and the skill sets to be able to execute the job, having the knowledge of fire behavior and also building instruction, those two are the, uh, are the, the, the primary foundational pillars to which everything is based off of uh, in the fire service because it's the, the, those two knowledge bases of fire behavior and building instruction, which allows us to, prop, uh, to accurately and to quickly size up the fire ground and to then make those decisions um, we, or in split seconds with you know, varying degrees of, of information. So that's that's where I think we, we should just get, set our sights on is just um, really honing it, or homing in on the timing aspect, and making sure that we're um, we're, we're we're timing our operations as best we can, so that they support. Uh, they support each other and that we're accomplishing our mission, mission to the best of our abilities, given the, uh, the conditions that we were presented with and the resources that we have available.
0: It's actually kind of funny you brought up building construction and fire behavior because that's literally our very next question. So how do you think we can enhance uh, our teaching for building construction and fire behavior?
1: What I would really like to see, and I think uh, James Johnson does a, a phenomenal job of uh, instructing on on building construction as it relates to the fire service. He, uh, because of his his background with uh, with the trades and um, you know his experience as uh, I believe a Vancouver uh, firefighter, uh, it makes for a tremendous mix. And I would love to see a fire service text that is more firefighter friendly and more practical for the fireground there's a lot of good books out there you know with you know Brannigan, the individual publishers have their their own building construction texts but in everything I, I've I've read and that I've been exposed to, they really go in my opinion too in depth on, uh, the construction, the actual construction side of things. So it's a little bit more geared towards uh, the fire protection engineers, the ones that are in the ones who are involved in code, whether it's writing of the code, enforcing of the code, and it leaves a lot to be desired for uh, the street firefighter. So while there's a lot of tremendous information within there in you know, of course, any information is going to be beneficial. I would just like to see a more streamlined in uh, condensed and focused version that is more fireground centered in um, whose like content and information is going to lead us to better decision making when it comes to our tactical and strategic selection on the fire ground.
0: Thank you, man. Um, so, how do you work on improving your decision-making abilities on the fire fireground?
1: The th- thing I do the most is probably that that introspection and that, that uh, looking at after every fire that I have, I tear it apart from start to finish and go into every finite detail, especially that you know what was in my purview of uh, things that I did and things that I was responsible for because we're, we're our own biggest critics. And, um, I think to really improve oneself, you have to be brutally honest, um, when you're evaluating yourself and your own performance. So I try to be, to do just that. So, while I may not go to as many fires as uh, those that work in, you know, the bigger metropolitan cities or the more, you know, ghetto cities, um, you know, the department I work in is no slouch either, but what I, I make sure of is that I never waste a fire. So while there's plenty of other people that have been to far more fires than me, I've never wasted a single fire. And I think that's where I've been able to really um, improve myself. And my understanding is by tearing apart, every fire that I've been to and looking where uh, what went well and things that worked, but also more importantly, what could, what needed improvement and where uh, I could have made better decisions or improved my performance. Because only through having that, that brutal honesty, can we identify those weaknesses or identify those shortcomings and then look at how do we We progress and how do we improve from there? How do we, you know, um, those cover those blind spots for the future? So that that's definitely my biggest focus. And then also, uh, because fire duty from for a lot of us, uh, you know, ebbs and flows and has historically kind of trended uh, more downward over time. It's more important than ever for people to tap into uh, the other. Uh, the other fire companies and the other groups that work on our department and even you know people from other departments so when you go to the firehouse if the crew that you're relieving went to a fire the day before or the shift before you better be picking their brains to make sure that you find out everything you can about that fire so you're getting that secondhand, that vicarious uh, um, fire ground experience from those individuals because it's amazing the things that you can glean and especially the, if the individual who's, who's, uh, recalling that fire that they went to, the more information and detail that they can give, the more vivid imagery that they can provide for you, um, the more realistic it makes for you in your mind. And, well, one of the, the things that, uh, that I, uh, that I've been paying close attention to now and what my kind of focus of study is, is, um, like the, the whole, Performance aspect, especially the mental performance, and I very closely follow what Jason Bresler and his team at Leadership Under Fire have been doing, uh, as well as you know gentlemen like Rick Rick George and you know fire uh, the firefighter resiliency training, uh, in in going down that whole rabbit hole of you know the books like On Combat with Colonel Dave Grossman and you know reading books like uh, Peak by uh, um, the Anders Ericsson. Uh, those type of books that go into you know how the brain works and how we uh, de- you know develop expertise and um, how we become proficient and develop expertise um, and how we become high performing I think that's critical so wh- this whole thing about pr- performance imagery the the highest level athletes or the, the people that are at the pinnacle of whatever their their field is they regularly you um, perform this mental, this mental, uh, imagery. So take an athlete, for example, it could be them watching film and then them imagining, uh, if they're a, uh, a wide receiver, them running a particular route and, and completing the, uh, and completing the reception. So it's in the, the way that this works is the more vivid, uh, the imagine your imagination, the more, um, details you're able to to put into place, the more of your senses that you can invoke, uh, the way your brain works is if you've done it uh, well enough and you've made it vivid enough, your brain can actually uh, store that as, as an actual occurrence. So it stores it in your mind almost like an actual event that took place. So while obviously nothing ever replaces firsthand experience, if you conduct this performance imagery with enough frequency uh, and, and enough vivid imagery, uh, you could a- actually trick your mind into storing that, um, that event like its own memory and its own occurrence. Um, and you're basically getting mental reps in. So in lieu of you know, being able to get hands-on training or in lieu of um, that actual fireground experience, because we unfortunately can't control that, um, you can build those mental reps uh, by doing that, and part of that comes from you know uh, learning from others and their experiences because you know I was able to to execute a tactic that I learned from another uh, fire officer from a story that he had told about a fire that he had been to, um, and I was able to recall it in a, a in a moment of of high stress where there was a, I had to make a split second decision, but because that that gentleman told that story. Um, with such detail and so accurately and had layered all the the context into it in that moment when you know the it was hitting the fan I was able to go through that mental Rolodex and find that that um, and find that find that particular slide in the slide tray um, and execute that tactic just as as, is just as I had done it in the past or like I had been uh, as if I had done it in in training which I hadn't prior to that. Um, so I can't stress it enough that, you know, pick people's brains, do as much as you can to learn from the experiences of others and you know, never waste an opportunity and be brutally honest with yourself throughout your career.
0: <clears throat> All right. Last, last two, really simple. Um, if you had a crystal ball, could see the future. What would fire service training look like in 10 to 20 years?
1: Well, this is a difficult question because there could be a very big divergence between where I'd like to see it go and where I hope it goes to what actually might happen. So, of course, I'd love to see um, there be some more common ground between, you know, like NFPA 1403 and you know, being able to enhance re- realism and enhance uh, the experience of live fire training while while still uh, maintaining an acceptable degree of safety. Um, and also, you know, hopefully, with, I know some states are, are far more stringent than others when it comes to the environmental uh, protocols that they have to follow and the restrictions that they're bound by, but I'd love to see us become more like the military uh, with how we uh, how we view training and how we execute training, because that really is going to be the, um, the ingredient to us becoming um, more professional, becoming more of a true vocation and ma- better mastering our craft. You know, it's like when you look at whether it's the, the trades, whether it's the military, whether it's even the medical community, you know that their their field training and their uh, their their hands-on training is actually being uh being out there in their particular uh, arena executing the tactic under under real conditions, but for some reason the fire service is bound by just a different set of rules when it comes to this, and. The it, it seems like the fire service and uh, the government uh, agencies that uh, that that we have to abide by and that set these parameters, uh, they don't uh, the level of acceptable risk that they're allowing us to 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 have is much less than what they allow for the military, and it just seems uh, to me it's it's counterintuitive because. You know, while you know, wartime ebbs and flows, and um, the the fire service—it's it, just like the that that plaque on the the FDNY firefighters monument. It's it's uh, the war that never ends. So, in communities all across the country, they're going to fires that that doesn't change. There's the, that, that wartime is, is 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 infinite. So we I th- again, I'm not saying to that that death or or injury is acceptable in training but i think we need to um take a better look and, and be a little bit more uh realistic in our view towards towards risk and training and what is is truly acceptable and and to what, what is truly needed for us to to become uh reach that that next level of professionalism and and achieve that same that same standard as as uh our, our brethren in the in the military
0: that's a great answer man I'm, I'm i'm really hoping too that we we stick down the path of like true uh you know hands-on training versus you know video-based stuff right you know
1: uh, and, that, and that's what's difficult too is uh again the the silver lining of the pandemic was uh the creation of the the, the zoom you know, platforms and webinars and which has brought instructors to to all corners of, of the country that may ne- never have had that opportunity to reach those individuals because of the the amount of cost involved in, in flying somebody out. Um, so now you have instructors from all over that have in, like an infinite reach now. So that's been incredibly beneficial. But I really hope that it doesn't become this uh, this cop out and this easy button for the fire service to tap into and say, oh, you know, we can just uh, we'll, we'll just we'll just zoom it. You know, and everything becomes, uh, you know, web based and you know webinar based. And there, this is a this is a voc- vocation. It's a hands on, you know, dirty profession that requires, uh, you know, training that that mirrors that as much as as, as possible. And I think there's a, a lot of folks out there, um, many of whom are involved in the Fire Nuggets organization that are trying to do that as much as possible given the uh, the current. Uh, parameters that there that are in place, but I, I really hope that uh, we continue to advocate for the importance of of quality hands-on training and the need for realism to, to making making sure that we uh, we're as prepared as possible so we can provide the highest level of protection for the communities that we all work for. Because, and and to be honest with you. Uh, they, they, we want to throw around the, the, the safety word and everything and becomes, uh, you know, safety driven when it comes to these restrictions and these parameters that are put in place. But ultimately, the, the way that we come, become the most safe, the way that we can improve safety the most is by being the best at our job. The competency and proficiency is, to me, is the pinnacle of safety. The better you are at your job and the more skilled you are, the more knowledgeable you are the safer that you're inevitably going to be while, you know, we can't control uh, every variable of the fire ground. And there's going to be some things that are inevitably out of our control, regardless of if we make every right decision and, and execute uh, flawlessly, there's some things that are out of our control, but that's the inherent risk that we all accepted when we raised our right hand and and took that oath to become firefighters in the first place. Um, and that, that goes back to that, that, uh, that famous chief croaker uh, quote, which was, you know, you're, uh, your, your act of bravery was, was when you, when you took that oath and oath and became a firefighter and you raised that right hand, everything, everything else is in the line of duty. And that's the way we need to look at it is, is that it's not being, you know, taking a cavalier attitude or, or throwing caution to the wind, but we need to understand that there's a, there's a certain amount of, of risk that, that needs to be uh, that needs to be tolerated and that we need to um, making sure that we're, we're, we're preparing our, our, ourselves and, in, uh, in our fire departments for, for what's potentially out there and what we could be con- confronted with.
0: I not agree more. This very last one. So this was kind of like a little fun one. Uh, what is the best conference you've attended best class you've been to and the best book you've read?
1: Uh, so the best, uh, I haven't been to too many conferences or, you know, like, uh, I I'm the best, uh, like seminar conference, uh, I think I've been to was uh, the the Joey the Joey D Memorial uh, Seminar that um, uh, Joey's father, who is a retired uh, deputy chief from uh, FDNY as well, uh, he puts on his his parents are tremendous tremendous people and uh, after you know Joey tragically uh, succumbed to uh, the effects of his injuries from the Black Sunday fire, uh, his. Parents went on a mission to make sure that not only uh, Joey's legacy was was kept alive, but also to prevent uh, such a tra- tragic incident from from occurring again by uh, starting the, this Joey D Foundation, which is heavily funded by the the conference and you know by other activities that uh, that, that go on throughout the year, in addition to uh, gracious donors. Um, but the point is, is to to put the uh, uh, the PSS, the personal, uh, you know, uh, safety systems and the the bailout ropes in the hands of firefighters across the country, especially in areas that don't have the financial means to do so, as well as the training to make sure that uh, uh, they're competent in using them um, if, God forbid, they have to put it into practice. And the, uh, I've been to that, that conference uh, uh, for a few years. I'm actually attending again as, uh, you know, to, for the lecture and for the hands-on this, uh, this year in the fall. And it's just a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal organization, phenomenal seminar that they put on. And the first year that I went out, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better lineup. You had Jerry Tracy, John Norman, and Mickey Conboy all lecturing under the same roof on the same day. I mean, talk about a a trifecta of some of the the biggest legends in 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 the modern fire service. And Uh, I mean, the the nuggets that were dropped that day was just incredible. And it's because it's a a smaller, more regional conference. It's much more personable and uh, you're able to interact with the instructors. And, you know, from there's a ton of FDNY guys that are there as well as, you know, people from all over the uh, tri-state tri-state area. So it's just a, a great, great event for a great cause. So that's my i would say my favorite conference the my favorite class uh without a doubt and it's not even no contest is the nozzle forward program uh for me that opened my eyes to so many things uh that i was completely unaware to it was one of those classes that you were so fulfilled by when you left but also you were filled with such accomplishment and, and and pride and what you just did over the, the past 22 hours but also um you were pissed too because i was so mad that what, uh that i hadn't learned those skill sets right from my first day in the fire service because to me the skill sets that i learned over those 22 hours were so critical and so impactful to um the way i operate today and you know the 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 knowledge and skill sets that I've been able to pass along to the people that I work with. Uh, I don't, I just it, it, I couldn't fathom how that wasn't being taught as the baseline curriculum for engine company operations in every fire academy. To so especially because so many of us um don't have the luxury of you know endless or or you know well staffed uh, uh handlines. You know, we don't most of us don't have the ability to fill you know, in addition to the nozzle, the office and uh, the officer position, most of us don't have the luxury of a, a dedicated backup, uh, backup firefighter and a dedicated uh, door firefighter and God forbid, a dedicated control firefighter. I think there's only one fire department in the entire country that's able to fill that role on a, on any kind of a regular basis. Uh, so to me, for the vast majority of America that has two firefighters on a hand line, which is typically the nozzle firefighter and the officer who the officer is now forced to play, you know, the, those uh, put those other hats on and in addition to their supervisory role. It, to me, that the, those skill sets were just invaluable. Um, and uh, Aaron has become a, a tremendous mentor to me. And, you know, I can't thank him enough for that. So I think he's, his instruction and in his uh, mentorship have put me on the, traje- the trajectory that Led me to being on this podcast with you today, and the things that I've been able to accomplish, and the um, the this the successes that I've been uh, been able to uh, in, enjoy and uh, in my professional career. Um, so I am very grateful for that, and you know I've I've taken the program you know multiple times, and you know will continue to do it every time I can uh, I can get access to a class within uh, within driving distance. So if anybody hasn't taken it, I couldn't uh, advocate for it enough.
0: All
1: right, and then book. Ooh, so book. Uh it's hard to pinpoint exactly uh one book, but I don't want it to uh, I, I want to try and get something new because I know a lot of guys have, have mentioned and which I already mentioned uh earlier in the podcast was the on combat by Grossman and uh you know the books that are within that genre. But I would say one of the best books that that I can can recommend that maybe a little bit more obscure. Uh, is uh, Steal My Soldiers' Hearts by uh, Colonel David Hackworth. So for anybody that follows Jocko, uh, Colonel Hackworth is the, the one who, who basically was the, the predecessor to Jocko and where he uh, found the, the biggest amount of influence from when he wrote his books and developed his leadership principles. And that book, Steal My Soldiers' Hearts, goes into... Um, when he took over uh, an infantry uh, or an infantry regiment in uh, the heart of the Delta during the the Vietnam War. And it was when he got there, it was one of the most underperforming uh, regiments out there. It was set up in the middle of a minefield. Uh, When he got there, like guys were out of uniform. There was guys that were there. They were facing multiple casualties a day for people just strolling, uh, strolling across mines because they had of where they'd set the, the, the camp up and uh, the lack of provisions that were put in place. And uh, there was no training, there was no discipline, there was no nothing. And the 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 commander that he was relieving was a, your stereotypical um, uh, ticket puncher who was just trying to, you know, make his way up the chain of command uh, the fastest way possible um, without doing, you know, much as as little heavy lifting as possible. So when he took it over, being a hard charging combat veteran from Korea uh, and coming from when he first started out in the the post-World War II era military, uh, he came from a a very strict regimented, highly disciplined uh, infantry platoon. And he took those same principles and applied them uh, with some serious protests to the point where there was, uh, there was rumors going around that there was a bounty on this guy's head uh, from his own guys. And he completely turned that, that group, uh, that regiment around into a, a full 180 and turned them into the highest performing um, infantry regiment in the entire Vietnam War uh, because of the values that, that he put in place Um, he renamed them, you know, he, he he called he changed the name to the the hardcore because every, every, uh, regiment had a, a letter designation and theirs had like a very, uh, like nondescript, uh, you know, name to it prior. So he gave it some, you know, some personality and changed their name to hardcore and then just put in some, some real hard charging training and just unwavering discipline, and just very progressively started implementing changes. You know, two two new things at a time was his rule, and he just he held the line. And despite the protests, despite the de- the the death threats, um, regardless of how legitimate they may have been, he brought that group around and instilled that esprit de corps and that um, that co- that unit cohesion, and turned them into um, the. The unit that had the best statistics in the, out of the entire Vietnam War. So it was just incredible to read, and you know, these were people from all walks of life. You had draftees, you had you know people, you had you know t- uh, t- guys that were in their teens. You know, they, they ran the gamut. So it's it very much parallels to the fire service with the differences in, in generations and ages to their level of motivation and you know, their level of passion and, and drive for the fire service. So being able to take those same principles and overlay them, especially for the folks that are tuning, in, uh, tuning into this podcast that have the same love for the job and passion that we do, it goes right along with the conversation that we had earlier. So I would definitely recommend that book. It's, a, it's one that you just can't put down. So it's a lengthier book, but it was one that you just had a hard time putting down and I flew through it very quickly. And it's just full of dog-eared pages and highlights.
0: Well, thank you very much. And and thank you for your time tonight. Uh, So, you know, if people want to reach you, I I know you can reach out to your Facebook because that's how I
1: I pretty much reach you. So,
0: (laughs) um, and if you got anything else to add, man, uh, if not, we're going to close up shop. So,
1: No, uh, if anybody, uh, feel free to contact me at at any time. I'm I'm very uh, accessible. Just... You, know, you can find me, I have, you know, my personal uh, accounts, it's uh, Nicholas Papa or the professional accounts, which are fireside training I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me or through the website at, at firesidetraining.org. Uh, or the email is uh, firesidetraining at yahoo.com. So feel free to reach out to me if uh, you have any questions or, you know, you want to talk shop about anything that we cover tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So look forward to to getting together with, uh, with you guys in the near future and really love the the relationships that I've been able to make through fire nuggets and, you know, hope there's um, many more to come down the road.
0: Same man. So, all right. Thank you everybody for listening and hope you guys have a good night.